This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Dan Fermat, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. Today is Friday, June 18th. Average gas prices are up over $3. U.S. COVID deaths keep going down, and we're focused on the economic state of Black America. Tomorrow is Juneteenth, a commemoration of the day in 1865 that enslaved Americans in Texas were emancipated. It was over two years after President Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation, but it's when freedom finally became real for many people in Texas, which was then a Confederate stronghold. Earlier this week, the U.S. Senate voted by unanimous consent to declare Juneteenth a federal holiday, and just yesterday, President Biden signed it into law. American slavery, of course, is in the past, but its legacy remains with us today. And maybe nowhere is that more evident than in the enduring wealth gap between black and white Americans. For example, the Washington Post reports that white households in 2016 had $149,000 in median household wealth. The number for black households was just $13,000. Remember, in America, money begets money, which means black Americans were disadvantaged from the start because their labor was unpaid, and even after emancipation, black Americans were often blocked from accumulating property and wealth and from other economic opportunities. Those disadvantages were perpetuated through discriminatory housing, lending, hiring, and educational practices, both official and unofficial. We're still working as a nation to rectify this today, but looking ahead, there doesn't seem to be much reason to think the wealth gap will shrink much. A new report out this week from McKinsey shows that the annual median wage for black workers is 30% lower than for white workers, or around $10,000 per year. Were the wages equal, then black Americans would have around $220 billion. Think about that, $220 billion of additional income each year. The report also looks at how wealth accumulates generation over generation and what it would take to address that disparity, one that can't be solved overnight. So today we want to go deeper into the wealth gap and this new report with two of its authors, Shelley Stewart III and Michael Chewy. But first, this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We're joined now by Shelley Stewart III, a partner at McKinsey and leader of its Institute for Black Economic Mobility, and Michael Chewy, a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute. Shelley, let's start with you. This report comes from the McKinsey Institute for Black Economic Mobility and the McKinsey Global Institute. Is this the first major action for this relatively new institute of black economic mobility? This is our signature piece to really launch the institute. That being said, it builds on a wealth of research that we've been doing on this topic for a number of years. We use this uh, current moment, this racial justice 
uh, moment that's been spurred by the murder of George Floyd and the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Black Americans to really formalize those efforts. And this piece is a reflection of us really planting a flag on the ground on this topic. Michael, what are you hoping that this report will accomplish? Well, number one, hopefully it will inform people. I think it's not a surprise to anyone that, in fact, Black participation in the economy is lower than we would anticipate and hope that it could be. Some of the things that we've been able to do is identify concentrated areas where progress could make an outsized impact on you know, the outcomes for, for Black Americans and for all of us in terms of the dynamism of the economy. And through that information, we would catalyze action in order to actually move uh, racial uh, equality, racial equity, and to be frank, racial uh, justice forward. Shelley, the report looks at economic mobility and participation of Black Americans by dividing things up into five different categories, business owners, consumers, residents, workers, and investors. Why that sort of framing? So we, we wanted to understand the Black experience, and we thought a really informative lens would be, let's look through the different roles that we play in society, right? Because this can really bring out the, the, the human side of, of, of this issue. So we looked at Black Americans as residents. We looked at Black Americans as workers to understand representation and wage gaps. We look at Black Americans as business owners, as savers and investors, and finally as consumers. And we really hope that by taking this view of the different roles we play, it'll be easier for different stakeholders to understand where they can impact the experience of Black Americans. Michael, you have these five frames, but obviously they all intersect. Can you unpack, uh, for example, how discrimination in financial services relates to the enormous challenges for Black business owners and entrepreneurs? There are these cycles. You know, people have talked about, well, just find the root cause and go after it. And it turns out that each root cause has another root cause behind it, and it eventually cycles through. That's absolutely true in terms of financial inclusion. If, in fact, people don't have as much money, it's less likely that they'll be banked. But then if you're less likely to be banked, you're less likely to get you know, better returns to be able to save, to be able to allocate your money in ways that you know, optimize your returns. So it is, in fact, these cycles. And it, to the extent to which interventions can actually change the trajectory at any one of these critical moments, we could potentially see things move forward. Shelley, let's turn more broadly to participation in the workforce, uh, where we're seeing these massive wage gaps. The report lays out several possible solutions around workforce participation. What do you think would be the most impactful change? 60% of the wage gap can be uh, categorized in just 20 occupations or 4% of overall occupations. And so this gives us a really sharp starting point. We need more black lawyers. We need more black doctors. We need more black teachers because not only do those represent immediate opportunities for better representation and better pay, but they really have downstream implications for the way people experience healthcare, the way they experience education, and the way they experience the criminal justice system. The report talks about how Black Americans are underrepresented in spending patterns. Why is the consumer aspect of economic participation so important as a metric of economic stability and sustainability and mobility? What we found is that Black consumers spend less than their share of the population would imply today. So they spend around 10% of the spending in the U.S. versus 13% of population. By the way, we need to address income so that consumption gets up to where it should be, but that's still $835 billion a year in spend. And if you think about where the bulk of consumer spend goes, it typically goes to things like housing, healthcare, 
accessing financial services and products. These are all things that are both, you know, the lack of access here are both symptoms of the wealth gap and income gap, but also causes of it. And so we need to address some of these consumer deserts, some of these quality issues in a way that increases the overall satisfaction of black consumers uh, in a way that's commensurate with what their expectations are. Michael, when we think about the wage gap that Shelley was just referencing, why is there still such a pervasive and large wealth gap as you guys lay it out? Well, there are a number of factors as as usual for any complexity. As Shelley mentioned, there are certain occupations uh, where if you look at the pipelines, we see you know potential black doctors, potential black lawyers, potential black you know IT folks falling off that pipeline. And if you focus there, you could change things. It is also true that where black people live are also isn't evenly distributed across the country. And so when you talk about you know a California-based company, for instance, saying we need to diversify our workforce, we want our employment representation to match that of the national representation of black people within the within the economy as as Shelley said well that might mean you need to actually put a a facility in a southern state for instance where you know more black people live a lot of these things are historical people live where they live because in many cases it's where their family lived etc quite frankly we also need to improve those jobs where people already work today black workers are overrepresented in a set of lower income occupations we can make those occupations better. We know from the pandemic that many of these were essential, essential workers. So shouldn't we pay them more? Shouldn't we have more scheduling uh, certainty? Shouldn't more benefits be provided to people who are literally providing benefits to other people? Where's the responsibility lie? Is it on businesses to put their offices and facilities where people are? Or is it that because of housing affordability, people can't afford to live where the best opportunities are? Look, I think I think it's both. We certainly have an affordability issue across this country, and it's certainly felt very acutely in some of the major hubs that have lots of economic growth. It's simple supply demand dynamics. So we do need to address the affordability challenge. And so if companies are committed to racial justice, as Michael said, then I do think there is some onus to locate in places where Black people live, that will ensure that you have access to pools of talent that you otherwise wouldn't have. So it is a win-win. Michael, what does the report suggest about how Black Americans today can accumulate wealth, given that the lack of wealth today is built on the past generations of discrimination? The focus of this report is trying to document what the state is today. And we didn't, as part of this report, do a, a detailed set of you know, program evaluations about what interventions are. But we did try to identify some examples of things uh, that you could do. Being able to understand the value proposition, what drives people to um, open a bank account. That might be different for a set of Black consumers uh, versus other consumers. If you find that out and you can reach those people, they can become profitable customers for you. So in many cases, this is applying business practices, great business practices to serving a segment of the of the population of consumers, which is neglected in many ways. When we talk about trying to close the wage gap, when we talk about trying to improve black economic mobility, how much of that is government responsibility? How much of that is private industry responsibility? It's everyone. Government sets the context. Uh, for the way that we all interact, right? Laws are passed, regulations are placed in place. There are government programs in terms of transfers and programs. That sets the context for everything else. So there are opportunities there to improve the outcomes and services for Black Americans. 
But that also is true in the private sector. Private sector also employs people, also provides products and services to people, uh, also is a way through which you know wealth is created. All of those things in each of our roles, uh, we've discovered ways, particularly for the private sector, but also where the public sector uh, can make contributions. We are taping this just ahead of Juneteenth, which commemorates emancipation from slavery. McKinsey, in this report, you guys intentionally opted to look at the current economic state of black America, but not focus too much kind of on the foundational causes. Why make that choice, particularly like this growing political discussion about reparations and systemic racism? I think you cannot truly understand the economic state of black Americans today if you're ignorant of how we got here. And so we do lead with some of that in the report, but the focus on our work right now is what are the solutions at the intersection of the private, public, and social sector that can really make a big difference? We have got to close the life expectancy gap between black Americans and white Americans. If we looked at it today, pre-COVID, it was a three and a half year gap that's widened with COVID. If we close that three and a half year gap, that would be two million more black Americans alive today. That has broad implications, not just for families, but for the economy and for society. And on education, we have made a decision on the way we fund public education in this country, which only serves to entrench disparity. We have to find a way to get funding to our public schools that are in neighborhoods that are low income if we're going to address these mobility challenges going forward. The word reparations doesn't appear anywhere in this report. Where does that idea fit into all of this? We decided to not focus specifically on reparations for this report for a number of reasons. What I do believe, having not studied reparations specifically in detail, is that significant investment is needed into Black communities. And that's going to be investment through a combination of the public sector as well as the private sector if we're going to really make a difference on wealth. I'll let others decide the exact form of that investment, but there is no question that significant investment is needed in underinvested communities if we're going to make a difference. Thank you to McKinsey and Companies, Shelley Stewart III, and Michael Chewy. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Lordstown Motors, an electric truck startup that Mike Pence once said was, quote, making manufacturing great again. Now, you might have heard of Lordstown because it got lots of headlines when it took over a shuttered General Motors factory in Ohio that used to make the Chevy Cruze, seeming to save tons of Rust Belt jobs. But since then, Lordstown Motors hasn't made any electric trucks. It did manage to go public via SPAC, but in just the past week, it's admitted that it lied about pre-orders, fired its CEO, and then yesterday had to walk back comments made by its new CEO about binding truck orders that were nothing of the sort. It's been kind of fake it till you make it, taken to absurd extremes. Now, the company does insist it has enough cash to get through September, when its first trucks could roll off the line. But if you aren't at least a little bit skeptical, I've got a factory in Ohio to sell you. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Singani, and Alex Sugiara. Please be sure to leave us a review. And if you're not already following or subscribed to the podcast, do so. Have a great national flip-flop day. And we'll be back on Monday with another Axios Recap.